0: Episode 19 of the Analytics FC podcast with myself, Sam Gregory, joined as always by Tom Morville, and this week our guest is a tactics writer and performance analyst, Tom Payne. So Tom, do you want to introduce yourself and just a- explain a little bit about what you do?
1: Um, hey, um,
0: so basically,
1: I I consider my main job, I'm a performance analyst at Huddersfield Town. Um, besides that, I also do opposition analysis for them, and we will be moving into recruitment soon enough. Um, online, I work for a German website, Spielverlagerung, as well as uh, a recent job at the New York Rebels and Interpress, which which is um, quite well known
2: through you guys. Cool and so obviously like you're pretty busy with a few different avenues there. How do you get into tactics writing because obviously you're quite young, I think you're like eighteen nineteen and you've already got loads and loads of yeah. content online. so you know how do you get into this sort of area of football to start with
1: um, so I've, I've never played football before. Um, I don't really consider it a disability, but I've got um, an issue with my jobs, so basically I can't play like, any intense sports. Like, I play cricket. Quite a lot, which obviously you don't really need to be of any fitness to play that. So kind of fine on that front. But no, I've never played football before. Um, so but I was still interested in the sport. So I guess this is where my interest really took off because I couldn't play it, obviously. So I just looked at other avenues in the sport. I've been writing. I started it to Euro two thousand and twelve. Um, just around the start then, really. I, I I was
0: pretty terrible at it, but I just kept going. So given that you got into football sort of through a different avenue and you approach it from this more analytical side of the game as opposed to someone who's maybe grown up playing football their whole life or just growing up with the sport, how do you think you watch it differently or how do you focus on the sport differently than the average person to be watching a game? Um, well,
1: I think, well, the average person would probably have more empathy for like the players themselves but I think particularly um I think the the average person would probably look from a perspective of the person in possession and their like view of the game will generally be oriented around the ball at a specific time whereas I think considering that I haven't had this experience I may look at it from a more like overall point of view perhaps that's something that I haven't actually given much thought to in the past, really.
2: So in terms of your tactics writing, is there sort of ways that, that sort of uh, you use aspects of that in your work with Huddersfield Town? Um, whether it's opposition analysis and applying sort of tactical principles to what you're looking at? Uh,
1: yeah, well, my work at Huddersfield Town, um, particularly with opposition analysis, that started before I started working for uh, spielfeld Um So when I first um got into there, onto the website. Um, I'd say that really helped my development in terms of like my, my analytical ability. And um, one thing that we do get criticised quite a lot on, um, I might refer to it as SV from now on, um, is our, our like, use of language, which is often quite alien to other people. But at Huddersfield, especially in the scout reports, I use it quite a bit. Um, so that there are links in that. And like, as I've started working there, I've been introduced to tactical concepts, um, which do take, some do take quite a, like a majority of my scout report,
0: will consist of things that I've learned there, if that makes sense. Yeah, so I guess the sort of follow-up to that is, how does the reverse happen? Like, do you find that if working with Huddersfield and working actually within a club in and- Improves your ability to analyze or look for different things in other games that aren't related to your job at all. Uh, yeah, I'd say so because like now
1: I do have the perspective, albeit it's an individual and won't be a I won't be able to be applied to all clubs. But I do have a perspective of how a team would prepare for a game, um, tactically especially, and how a team because at Huddersfield we have been quite reactive as a team, so. Um, I know how a club may look to um, might adapt strategically, um, considering the opposition that they're up against. So yeah, I'd say that does has um, my insight into a match has benefited from working at Huddersfield Town.
2: Now shifting the focus to sort of analytics work, um, do you like do you read a lot of analytic stuff? And if so, what do you think it can add to other forms of analysis? I'm not. I'm not sure. Uh, sure. Really, what um, to compare it to?
1: How much I read? I do read quite a bit. I read all of the analytics FC see generally. Um, I don't read masses in general, just because I usually am more bothered about working on my own stuff. Um, but in terms of what it can add to other farmers' analysis, I mean, at, at Huddersfield, we try to. Um, like keep them both connected very well. Um, I see a lot of stats analysis and also a lot of tactical analysis which they're they're very much separate things. Whereas I think that um, like tactics do define what the statistics have to measure. Whereas the statistics can measure like the effectiveness of tactics, if that makes sense. So I feel like they do need to be um,
0: combined To be fully effective from both hands and do you think that's a problem right now is that these two communities are too separate from each other and that there aren't enough people that are bridging the gap or do you see more and more people coming into this gap between the tactics community and tactics writing and analytics writing
1: yeah the the gap is slowly being bridged um i said i've been writing for three years so it's not not as much as some but it, it, it is slowly developing in the right way, I feel anyway.
2: And going back to the
1: ta- still see a lot of separate um, analysis between stats and tactics, but I think it's always going to be like that. But the like from the higher end of the writers it is being improved.
2: We thought it'd be good to sort of go over a few tactical concepts just so that we can sort of break them down into a bit, you know, more of a simple definition. Um, So I guess the first one would be, how would you sort of define the half spaces, and and why do you feel they are important?
1: Well, generally, historically, from an analytical point of view, the the pitch is split up into um, three. So you've got the wing, the centre, and the wing. Um, But with the half space, we split the pitch up into five different columns. So you've got the left wing, the left half space, the centre, the right half space, and then the right wing. And um so yeah it's it's literally just the space between the wing and the center um some people do confuse it with so like the channel between the full back and the center back because um, it is like a similar shape and it's in in a similar space generally but it is it's not a space which moves on the pitch
0: just it's, it's, yeah go on. Just as a quick follow-up to that. Do you think that we should maybe start to consider the idea of a half space, the idea that the half space might move depending on context, sort of where you can operate in those places, uh, in reference to where other players are on the pitch, or do you think it's better as a concept that is rigid and doesn't change based on where other players are? Um, I
1: think it, it can be interesting as um, a space which is flexible depending on positional context and things like that. That's that's definitely something to look into. At the moment, generally in my analysis, I use it. I consider it as a fixed space. But um, in terms of when a player use, uses uses a space around the half space, it can sometimes be dependent on like the opposition structure and things like that. I, th- I think if it were to become like such a flexible space, then it might add to the confusion but I'm not sure obviously without it actually happening
2: so to give a bit more sort of context to to the, the listeners I guess um what sort of examples of players would you say operate in these half spaces um
1: you could consider iniesta um in his time under guardiola he played left central midfielder but would usually move higher as would xavi but Xavi would operate deeper in the right half-space, whereas Iniesta would be in the left. Um, a more recent example would probably be when he was in the, a left-back, coming inside especially, he, an inverted full-back, he would move into the um, left-half-space. So I think uh, a very recent example of that sorry would be against Arsenal, if I remember correctly. He made a lot of movement in, ultimately into the attack midfield, but... He did act a lot in the left half space through there,
2: and this is David Alaba, correct? Yeah, cool. He just cut out. That was all.
0: So another concept which has come a lot, come up a lot in the tactics community is uh, I think I'm going to butcher this pronunciation, but "wego de posicion" posicion sounds more French, I think, than Spanish, but yeah, uh, I. I can't get the pronunciation right down. <laughs> it's, it essentially translates to roughly "game of positions," I think. Positional play. Positional play. Okay. Yeah. Uh, can you explain what this is and sort of how it can be used or applied? Okay, so positional play is
1: basically an attacking tactical concept where framework is provided for the team to play within a specific structure on the pitch. Um, the pitch is divided up into a grid. The most famous example. Probably Guardiolas, uh, you can find that pretty easily online. Um, then the team organiser will um, they'll organise themselves positionally depending on things like um, where the ball is um, using the, the grid. Because um, they have this guideline which can be like, predetermined, um, so they know where they're going to be positioned roughly, um, the attack can benefit from having basically an optimal spacing.
2: And in terms of optimal spacing, is that to like disrupt the opposition positioning, or it, wh- how would you define sort of optimal spacing? Um,
1: so generally, a structure. Are you familiar with spacing in
2: basketball? Uh, very vaguely, but I have like a basic understanding.
1: Yeah, it uh, basically a, a structure to, um, to play it basically to best facilitate ball circulation. So it can move quickly, effectively, throughout the pitch and um, circulate the ball into um, as many relevant spaces as possible. I think that would be the
2: the primary principle. So I guess a, a basketball example might be the Spurs, where they sort of yeah, exactly position themselves all around the uh, is it the D? I don't know the terminology in basketball, but essentially they move the ball around the sort of, um, the basket really, really quickly from one side to the other and then make the shot either a three or enter the sort of paint.
0: Yeah. So another concept, which we're hearing a lot about in England over the past month or so has been a uh, gegenpressing or counter pressing. And I think it's one of probably, I would say the most misused term in, uh, tactics. I don't know if you agree or not, but I'm curious, yeah. what do you think is a concise definition of what Gagan pressing entails?
1: Um well you've got different variants of counter pressing, but basically it is pressing the counter so immediately after losing ball position ball possession, the opposition going to attacking transition or start the counter attack generally um and it's in this moment where after losing the ball you press immediately um so you you are literally just pressing the opposition's counter. It's as simple as that, really. I've yeah, I've seen a lot of people use it incorrectly, whether they're just using it to label like a attacking style of play or playing at a high tempo. But it it is referring specifically to the action of pressing
0: as soon as the ball is lost. And there's been a lot of talk recently, well, not even recently, for a while now in tactics about how we or in analytics about how we can quantify what a press is which teams press well and which teams don't. Do you think that we can sort of quantify exactly what a counter-press is, or is that going to be more difficult? Because I know there has been sort of some – Colin Trainer did this thing we talk about quite a bit called PDDA, I think. Uh, Uh, Possession. uh, Oh, no, PPGA, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Possessions for Defensive Action, Um, which he just looked at. It's it's exactly what it says. The possessions that a team allows – for every defensive action, which I think he used clearances, interceptions, fouls, and tackles, and that sort of was a way to quantify pressing. But I'm wondering with counter pressing, what we should actually look for in the data to find which teams are doing it and which teams are doing it effectively.
1: Yeah, um, off the top of my head, I think the the simplest way and probably an effective way might maybe to um, do a similar stat to PPDA, but look. Uh, specifically at the of uh, five seconds after losing ball possession to look um, exactly at the moment in
2: which a team does counter press or would counterpress and in terms of I've heard the terminology before but like do you know what a, or is it like a, a a pressing trap a thing so it's like if a team enters a certain area on the field they'll start pressing it sort of quite effectively or quite uh, you know they, they really press quite aggressively. I guess the example I can think of is, um, I remember one point in the season Everton did this where sort of Lukaku and Kone wouldn't be pressing the ball at all and as soon as it sort of passes the halfway line into the Everton half, they'll sort of kick in and start pressuring the, the opposition team quite hard. Is that a thing? And, and, and you know, do different teams have different sort of degrees of a, a pressing trap? Um, yeah. Um, so
1: I think the most common pressing trap is usually when the ball... Um, enters a wide space, like down the touchline. J- this is generally because uh, I don't know if you're familiar with a Guardiola quote, um, but he said that the touchline is the best defender. Um, like when a player is positioned on the touchline, he only has one hundred eight degrees of movement. Uh, literally, uh, half the pitch, half of the space he has is cut off by the touchline, so it is very weak position to be in which is why teams will um, look to control the centre and then force the opposition down the wing, and then they'll let, uh, apply a pressing trap where they would generally look to press and contain the the ball carrier sorry, to the touchline and look to regain there. there. There have been a few cases of um, central pressing traps, but I think generally because it
0: it's a much more stronger position to hold the ball, it's less common. And this sort of gets into the next question, which is looking at team compactness and uh, and defensive compactness, which is a big one that people talk about—the space between defenders. How do you think this concept should be used, and how is it used in the tactics world right now? Um, sorry, what do you mean by how it like should be used? Well, uh, maybe that's a bad question. How how is it used? How about that? <laughs> um. Uh, generally,
1: people use compactness to describe like how tightly knit a defensive block is. U- usually, it is generally used for vertical and horizontal compactness. So that's literally just generally the space between the highest player and the deepest for vertical, and most left and most right for horizontal. Um, a few cases um, I've seen diagonal or spatial compactness used. Which is the compactness within the defensive block. So, for example, a team could be um, both horizontally and vertically compact, but if there are big spaces within the pit within the block, sorry. So, for example, if the left center mid is very close to the left mid, and the right center mid is very close to the right mid in a four-four-two, then the center is still uncompact. So, the the diagonal compactness or spatial compactness is something which I think we need to be aware of when defining if a team is compact or not, because effectively um, it isn't compact if the spaces in the centre are open.
2: And so, is compactness useful? I guess to sort of look to exploit teams and, and advance into spaces which they aren't covering.
1: Uh, yeah, definitely. Um, I think another. Um, I think it's from Pep Confidential, but I'm not certain. Um, Guardiola talks about how he looks to um position his best players in such places within the defense, within the opposition block w- which are open so yeah compactness um is definitely something which needs to which takes a bit of a priority um when look when like analyzing a team defensively especially in leagues such as the premier league where the the general standard is very poor though maybe this will develop now as Klopp's um, come and he's um, already seen to improve Liverpool.
0: No, a lot of these concepts we've just gone over are sort of commonplace within tactics writing, but there hasn't been a lot, for the most part, on these concepts done with trying to apply empirical rigor to them and trying to actually look if these claims that are made by tactics people or by tactics writers are true. I mean, I know Tom recently looked into half spaces. Um, we talked a little bit about people looking to counter-pressing. Do you think that there is a problem where people in tactics in the tactics community or tactics writers can sort of say whatever they want without being able to back them up with data generally yes, I think like I said earlier, um,
1: statistical analysis can be uh, it it can definitely improve tactical analysis by giving the, the clear evidence that like a tactical concept is evident that I think there may be a slight issue because um, generally on Twitter where it's obviously difficult to get complex data, complex data is generally needed to explain um, more complex tactical um, concepts. So it's difficult at the moment when we haven't got the, the greater quality data. But I think in the future, as because it is definitely progressing, especially with tracking data, I think it could improve in that respect though for for the part of um, tactics people um, being able to say what they want, um, I think it does happen quite a lot, but uh, a lot of the time it's quite difficult to exactly prove
2: from from what you just said there, like with the lack of data available, um, what data do you think do you think like the the sort of tracking and positional data would sort of solve a lot of these problems, or do you think there's more stuff in terms of um i don 't know speed of movement or looking at like a team shape over a game, I guess that still comes back to positional data being you know necessary to to look more in depth into these things
1: yeah I think positional data is definitely one of the things which are up there in terms of how useful it could be to um provide evidence for like tactical concepts uh, particularly a lot of the data that is mainstream and is the on-ball data, and that doesn't give the context of the situation, so it really lacks in that regard. And There's only so much you can do with it in terms of explaining like, conceptual things, which may or may
0: not have happened. And so how do you think these concepts will apply? You talked a bit about the gap in data between clubs and the public domain, but how do you think the stuff that's being done in public can be applied to clubs, or is it already being applied to clubs? In terms of the translation from, for example, Twitter to clubs. Yeah,
1: or Twitter blogs or whatever else. Yeah. Um, I think especially in the past, say, three years, um, we're seeing more of a connection, obviously, of people like, um, Ted Knutson and others getting work at Brentford I um, obviously Brentford a bit of an exception compared to your average club, especially in England but I think that it is becoming slowly more and more connected
2: yeah, so essentially, quite a few of the sort of stats and analytics guys have, are working or started to work with teams now. Um, is the sort of focus of the tactics community to do to, to do similar things in clubs, work with teams, uh, and you know, should tactics be a sort of specific role within the uh, you know the staff within a team, or do you think it's more of a a general role in terms of performance analysis?
1: Um, I think. I think it is more general from the people who I who I've encountered. Um, I'd say that, especially because I I'd, I'd consider the stats um, like sector in a team is developing more than tactics at this point. I'd say that um, it may be easier to get. It's obviously not going to be easy, but it may be more common to get a job um, as a statistician. From some something like Twitter, I mean, I got the job at Huddersfield through Twitter, um, and, but it was a re- really unusual way, um, and probably won't happen. It's very unlikely to happen again. I just got really lucky, exa- uh, basically. Um, but yeah, I do think there is it's, there's obviously no harm in trying. Um,
2: Can you go into a bit more detail of how you got hired through Twitter? It sounds quite interesting. <laughs>
1: <laughs> um, basically I'd, I'd had the um, my Twitter handle for like probably two months I produced one analysis of Bruce Dorman it wasn't very good it was probably at the end of the 12-13 season um, and I literally just DM'd the head of analysis Chris Markham on Twitter asking if he could have any advice for like, getting into the performance analysis Like sector, and his it was absolutely brilliant. And he offered me to come down to their training ground so we could have a chat. Um, He read my work on Twitter, and I think, yeah, it was coming up to a FA Cup, a youth cup semi-final against uh, Manchester United. I might have been quarter final. I'm not not exact on that. And he offered me to go to the match and analyze that, and then. He'd send that around. And basically, on the back of that, he offered me uh unpaid for the first-year job, basically in performance analysis, providing statistical benchmarks and um, opposition analysis. So it was really quite unique. I've been very lucky. lucky, And uh, the head of analysis at Huddersfield has been really
0: excellent with me, to be honest. Yeah, I mean, that's, it also, I think, shows that, like, just reaching out to people is actually a really good way of getting, getting of
2: getting opportunities and stuff. Oh yeah, exactly. So in terms of watching football, are there any teams that you really enjoy watching? Um,
1: well, I support Huddersfield and Borussia Dortmund. Um, especially this year, Dortmund have played some very nice football. Um, although not hundred percent, it it's very likely that um, Thomas Tuchel has been. Um, using positional play or at least some uh, like principles from it um during his sabbat- sabbatical after he left Mainz he he was talk- he had a lot of meetings with guardiola who obviously also plays positional play um so they've they've come on a lot and they're a, a really nice team to watch not just from a supporters perspective um palestina um, going slightly more um off the beaten track um, play in the first division of Chile. Um, they also play positional play, and they're they're good to watch. Um, you've got the generally tactically interesting teams such as Rayo Vallecano, um, Napoli under Sari have come on quite a bit um, this season. And obviously, it's going to be interesting to see the development of teams such as Liverpool under Klopp and wherever Guardiola is next.
2: Um, More about Palestina, why are they so interesting?
1: So I think um, what's interesting with Palestina is um, you see teams such as Barcelona or Bayern Munich employing um, such a style of play with unlimited resources, basically. With Palestina, the fact that they still play positional play and a a very unique uh, tactical attacking concept, but with such less resources than what we see usually, I think it's interesting because you can see how it's applied and the differences in terms of
0: quality. And uh, one interesting question we got from Twitter is, do you think tactical theory can point analytics toward a way to in- to effectively rate individual defenders, which has been one of our biggest problems in analytics, is evaluating defenders?
1: Yeah, that's a good question. Um, I, th- yeah, I think that the tactical theory can provide an insight, particularly through, again, positional data, um, because again, on ball data doesn't really provide enough context I feel to analyze a defender's performance. Um so whether that be looking at the position of positioning of a defender if he maintains the compactness of a defensive line, um or if he if he it, it's very difficult to measure, but if he makes like a certain movement which will stop something happen like developing in the opposition play before as opposed to it ha- actually happening and The defender having to say tackle the player or make the interception. So if, like, an analyst can understand um, these theoretical concepts, then it may provide a way to use positional data to um, find this. But the data is generally uh, will have to be of a high complexity,
0: and again, could be difficult to find. So one thing I looked at recently was the idea of sort of relieving expected goals based on something outside of defensive action. So I just looked at this five-second passage of play from the Liverpool-Man City game where De Michaelis stepped up and provided a little bit of pressure and Fernandinho came back as well and forced Liverpool into making a sort of their second-best option. And do you think this kind of thing is sort of where this d- debate would go into... Trying to look at things that defenders do that impact the decisions of the other team, as opposed to straight winning the ball back or things like that. Yeah, you could say that. I think if I think
1: there must must be a way to quantify the um, the options. Not sure if that could be through expected goals or perhaps expected assists. I've seen that that could be a possibility, perhaps. Especially if the the player, the option is a pass, obviously.
2: Going back to the tactics things again, I, I mean, we've answered this question, myself and Sam have answered it before on the podcast, but essentially, um, you, know, you know, obviously Pep Guardiola is a great manager and has introduced some really interesting tactical concepts, um, but his squad at Bayern Munich is, you know, one of the strongest in Europe anyway. Do you think that? You know, do you think that he's just he's a good manager, or do you think it's more so that you know they probably win that league the way they do anyway, with the just because of the, the amount of talent they have on their on the squad.
1: Um, I think you've got to look at the development of the squad um, through before he was there. Obviously, there was the excellent season, season under Jurpankus, but yes, I, I do think that Guardiola is an excellent coach um before he took the job at barcelona he managed barcelona b and when he took over there were from what i know a, a bad side and he developed them he developed in that team there were players i think pedro and busquets were two of the the main players and the development he's had the effect he's had in developing such players are
0: massive really and like where do you think uh, pep guardiola team Coaching side like Real Vaca or Celta Vigo would finish in the table. That's a very difficult question.
1: Um,
2: do you think that that sort of his level of coaching can uh, sort of significantly upgrade a side like you know Rio or Celta or you know sort of the mid to the mid level side in any league? I guess. Do you think that a manager of his style can can boost the team's abilities that much, or do you think it is you know, tactics aren't that much of the conversation. It's more down to uh, you know player quality.
1: Yeah, I, I think um, if Guardiola and his staff went to a team such a mid-table side, they would improve uh, massively. I, I couldn't give a prediction on, for example, what place they'd finish in the league, but. Um, the tact, the tactical elements do have an important role to play, and obviously the players that they have at their disposal are is key as well. But I, I think the criticism of which Guardiola sometimes gets of how he's always had it easy with squads is um, quite ignorant, really.
2: Ignorant in terms of you know some players have been perfect and he's had to mould them into the players they are today.
1: Yeah, and, and just a like a disregard for the complexity of the task, really, of coaching and developing such a team.
2: Cool. Um, so, Tom, anything you want to plug before we wrap up?
1: Um. So yeah, my Twitter handle is at um, Tom Payne FTBL. Um, I write at Spielverlagerung, which, um, it's at Spielvercom um, on Twitter. I also write for New York Red Bulls, um, but. You can find all that on my own
0: Twitter page as well as um, Interpress.
2: Uh, Sam, anything you want to plug?
0: Yeah, um, tomorrow it, it might not, might, it may or may not be out by the time this podcast comes out. But I'm uh, going on from the Black Hole, which is a Canadian podcast to talk about all things uh, analytics related to the Canadian national team. Which obviously, I'm sure a lot of people listening to this have no interest in the Canadian national team, but it's like it's a good podcast, and I think it's an interesting look into. Uh, It'll give an interesting look into what it's like to be a supporter, while also having to own up to the numbers
2: when the numbers don't say good things. It should be good. I'm sadly not appearing on any podcasts. <laughs> <laughs> cool. That's uh, that's it, guys. Thanks for joining us, Tom. Um, yeah. Thanks. Thanks for the invite. Cool. And cheers again, Tom. Cheers.